Welcome back to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. And today we are talking to the one and the only Stephen DeKnight. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Would yes. you like to introduce yourself? Do the little elevator <laughs> IMDB or whatever that sounds like? <laughs> oh, yeah. The elevator IMDB. Uh, well, I'm a writer, director, producer. Um, started years ago on MTV's Undressed and worked my way up from there. And uh, now I'm on this podcast. <laughs> You've come so far. Highlight of the career. <laughs> I actually realized, Stephen, I've never actually asked you, um, did you go to film school and do that whole thing? Did you know you wanted to be a writer? That was what you were, what you were heading for? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I actually I grew up in a small town in South Jersey called, and I'm not making this up, Millville, uh, which is, uh, <laughs> if you've ever seen Tom Cruise and All the Right Moves, it's like that town except smaller and grimmer. Yeah. Um, so small, we didn't even have a movie theater. I had to ride my bicycle a half hour to the next town to catch a movie. Um, That's really cute. Uh, the most exotic food we had was one Chinese restaurant downtown. I remember when I came back for Christmas years later when I was going to college, everybody was uh, very excited that Taco Bell had opened up. So uh, that's... <laughs> Real Mexican I, food's coming to town. <laughs> I, I was as far removed from the center of the galaxy as possible. Um, so I, I wanted to be an actor originally. And I went to UC Santa Cruz in the mid-1980s uh, to study acting. And while I was there acting, I uh, realized I was an okay actor, but uh, I'm not a big guy. You know, I, I, I'm not a, a towering presence and I'm no uh, Dustin Hoffman or Al Pacino. So I, I always liked writing and I discovered I was a much better writer, you know, and I poked around with bad poetry and some questionable prose mm -hmm. before I landed on playwriting. So I started writing plays and we started putting up plays and uh, uh, I was getting some momentum there. So after I graduated... I applied to grad school and got accepted to UCLA in the playwriting program. So uh, for two years, I went through the playwriting program at UCLA, and then I hung around an extra year uh, because who wants to leave college, quite frankly? And I uh, took some film courses, some screenwriting courses in that final year. So uh, yeah, my, my main background was studying as a playwright, which I, I, I think really helped me in the career uh, transitioning to film mm. and television because what I discovered is um, a lot of times in these classes, uh, the people coming through film school, they were, um, they were really great, but their focus was more on plot and story and less on character. Mm-hmm. And uh, my focus was more on character, and I was a little weak on plot and story. <laughs> it took me a while to work that one out. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I, I did go through uh, seven years of college back when it didn't cost you, you know, $150,000 to do that. <laughs> uh, I was very lucky in that respect. I, I got a lot of grants and scholarships and work study um, because my, my parents were both factory workers. So uh, they loved me dearly, but when it came came time for college, they they very bluntly told me, it's up to you because we can't afford to send you. Yeah. But yeah, so that was that was my training. It was mainly as a playwright. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that brought you to LA. The topic of our episode today is show running, which is a huge topic that I I mm-hmm. would love to talk to you about for hours and hours, but <laughs> to narrow it down so that we can fit it into an episode, we're specifically going to talk about transitioning from writer to showrunner. And if we have some time transitioning from then writer to director. So I guess let's start with the first one of writing to show running, um, mm-hmm. making that making that transition. So what was the first show that you show ran and where were you at in your career at that time? Well, I, I got to say, I got to preface this by saying the transition was a lot easier 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more oh. difficult now. And, and Tasha, we've had this conversation because uh, the streamers move to a very short order, usually eight to 10 episodes. And writers coming up through the ranks don't have a chance to be on set to be in editing, be in post, because generally now, especially if it's an eight episode order, you write all eight episodes before you start shooting. And so the writers are released before you start that valuable production period. I I, I came up through (laughs) through the old days when it was 22 episodes a year and you worked for 11 months, you had three weeks off and then you went right back into it. So, Mm. um, because when you do 22, the showrunner can't be everywhere. So they task the writers, even at lower levels, to be on set, be in editing, be their eyes and ears. Yeah. And that's really where I learned the nuts and bolts of how to put together a show. And I have to say, Stephen, that that was the most exciting thing about working with you. And we almost worked together. <laughs> we worked together for a short time. <laughs> and we almost sold a show, but didn't. Um, but oh, the... Shoot. Should we just do an entire episode about that? <laughs> yeah, we should. One day, we should. Yeah. That's a, that's a deep it, dive. It was an exciting thing because I had been on a show and like exactly as you say, we had six episodes and once we were done breaking them and writing them, the showrunner then took one other writer with him overseas to film the show and none of us got to see any of that process. And yeah. that's what you're craving, right? That's how you learn to be better. And you absolutely just offered to me shadow you and you directed and show ran and all of that stuff and it was such an exciting opportunity that I still wish I had gotten <laughs> um, but it, but you're right like because because we're not getting that it requires people like yourself to offer that um, because you're not expected to offer it anymore I feel like yeah um, and, and also when I started out um, I, I got my first break in 1999 on MTV's I'm the first several shows that I worked on, which were MTV's Undressed, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Angel, they all shot in L.A., uh, which is almost unheard of now um, because of space, because of the expense, uh, better mm-hmm. tax breaks elsewhere. So we had a, a you know a wonderful, especially on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because we the writers' room were at Bergamot Station in uh, Santa Monica. And for those of you who don't know Bergamot Station, it's an old uh, train station, basically, that they converted into artist warehouses. And we had a separate section that Fox owned, which was our own little back lot. So all of the stages and the writer's room were at Bergamot Station. So we could literally just walk down from our office and we were on set on Buffalo. Like how? That's insane. Um, so uh, I it, live right it was, down the street from there. That's right. Yeah, it, it, it was wonderful. It, it was absolutely wonderful. And uh, and Joss sent us down all the time mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, when you're doing 22 episodes, it's a nonstop machine and, and you need somebody on set uh, basically to make sure, you know, the train tra- stays on the tracks. 
So it's it's much more difficult today, and and you're starting to see articles and people speaking out that uh, the industry is headed for trouble because there aren't enough properly trained writers moving into showrunner positions. Mm-hmm. And uh, and for me, the bigger thing beyond that, it's just writers coming up through the rank are getting robbed from a wonderful experience. It, it look twenty two episodes a season. I don't ever want to go back to that. It's brutal. But I'm glad I came through that system because you got to do so much. You literally got to do everything. And also, we'll talk about the transition to directing later. You got an opportunity to tran- you know, a transition into a director. But for me, the show running thing. So I, I, I did MTV's Undressed, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel. Then when Angel wrapped up, I went over and joined uh, Al Goff and Miles Miller on three seasons of Smallville. After that, I decided, (laughs) I lost my mind and decided I want to do something really different. So (laughs) I was was talking to Josh Friedman about coming on the Sarah Connor Chronicles. I was talking about going on to Chuck. But instead, I decided I wanted to sign on for a CBS musical called Viva Laughlin. If anybody remembers that, I'm seeing blank stares, so I'll remind <laughs> everyone. I, I was just nodding. Yeah, 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 yeah maybe. Viva yeah. Laughlin. Um, CBS was in an experimental phase. Uh, they were trying some different stuff, and God bless them for doing that. Viva Laughlin was an American remake of a British show called Viva Blackpool. Uh, and if you ever get a chance to see Viva Blackpool, it's wonderful. It's very much, it's like, uh, uh, I'm a big fan, obviously, from my playwriting background. I'm a big fan of musical theater, and I'm a huge fan of Dennis Potter. Uh, Pennies from Heaven, Singing Detective, you know, where Dennis Potter's thing was. He did musicals, but he had the actors lip-syncing music from like the 1940s, the 1930s. Oh, that's clever. And it's really fantastic stuff. If if you especially um, pennies from heaven um, is absolutely uh, amazing. Uh, the Dennis Potter pennies from heaven. They were doing this remake, American remake of Viva Blackpool, which was very much in the Dennis Potter vein. The characters break into song. Um, I, I think in that case it might have been pop songs, uh, more like from the eighties. And I'm like. When am I ever going to get a chance to do this? Let's. My agents thought I was nuts, <laughs> so so I sign on to this, and uh, <laughs> uh, it, then then the fun starts. Um, so I, I signed on to it as a co-executive producer. That's the level I was at. And uh, for listeners who don't know, co-executive producer is right under executive producer, and all showrunners are executive producers, but all executive the producers are not necessarily showrunners. It's just a level you get to. So I'm a co-executive producer with another wonderful writer, Tyler Benzinger. And uh, <laughs> so they've already shot the pilot. We come on. Hugh Jackman is one of the producers, and he's also going to appear in the first couple of episodes of the show. And uh, and then everything starts to fall apart. Uh, CBS tests the pilot, and it tests it really well until people started singing. And then it's like somebody shut off the electricity. (laughs) So when they were promoting the show, they kind of tried to hide the fact it was a musical, which is, you know, caught people by surprise. So 
uh, we were shooting episode two and it was mad chaos. Uh, it's just, and, and I, I don't blame anybody. I don't blame the showrunner creator. It's just the thing. Sometimes a show gets away from you. And, and I've had that experience myself later in my career. So, you know, we were shooting episode two and we get to the end of the shooting schedule and literally like only half of the episode has been shot um, in the studios freaking out. It was a, it was Sony was the studio CBS. Everybody's freaking out. Um, there were also a lot of producing entities. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Hugh Jackman's company, uh, BBC America, Sony, CBS. I remember our first notes call. There were, and I'm not exaggerating, 20 executives on the notes call. Oh, and then, no. And then we had to tell them, nightmare. pick one person from each. Yeah. Because it's 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 too many. So it, it was mad chaos. The show wasn't working. And uh, make it long story short, Tyler Benzinger and I took over the show at, oh, wow. at episode three to try to get it back on track. We kind of sort of got it back on track. Um, we were shooting episode seven when the show aired. And we aired on a very special night after uh, after CSI on Thursday, where we lost 10 million viewers. Oh, no. <laughs> and then we aired our, our second episode in our regularly scheduled time slot on Sunday, where I think we lost another 10 million viewers. This is back when you had 10 min- million viewers on a show. Yeah. And uh, Monday driving into work, we were canceled. Oh, wow. So that was my kind of proto first step into show running. Um, I don't fully consider it because the, the show was already going. Yeah. And Tyler and I were really more like a Band-Aid. It sounds like this was actually a really great learning experience because you you like became a showrunner without having to do exactly what you're saying, like get things going. You just, you saved the show yeah. for a minute. You're a hero. The show got canceled, unfortunately, but that sounds like actually a really good series of events. It, it was uh, it was interesting. Uh, it, one one side story about when we were canceled. So we're all sitting around. You know, we told the the writers' room we were canceled. Uh, the writers' room was in Santa Clarita. So we tell everybody we're canceled. Nobody's really surprised. I mean, the, the show was very troubled. Uh, so we're all sitting around having a drink, saying our goodbyes, and then suddenly somebody burst into the writers' room. It was one of the facility uh, one of the facility guys, and said. You all have to leave immediately. Santa Clarita's on fire. So we're like, what? Oh, no. So we go outside, and I'm not shitting you. It's it's like God hated this show. It was <laughs> biblical. There was a cloud of crows had descended on the facility, and the hillsides were on fire. So literally driving away, all I saw were crows and flames. It was, <laughs> it was apocalyptic. Was that the last time you were there? <laughs> that was the last time I was there in my rearview mirror, just the end of the world. So, so after that, uh, uh, the the writer strike happened, and uh, what would that be? Two thousand eight. Can I ask real quick though? On that previous job, even though you came in as showrunner and took over for someone else, were you still making all the decisions of a showrunner? Do you want a red shirt or a black shirt? Do you want to shoot here? Here? What are you making all of in your? Is there budget choices that you're making as well? And- yeah. Yeah. T- Tyler and I were were sharing all those responsibilities. Okay. Got it. Casting, uh, you know, replacing certain crew members. Was that a shock to you at that point? Or because you had so much on-hand experience in Angel and Buffy coming up, yeah. that that was sort of expected? 
you knew your way around those things. Yeah, thankfully, uh, by the time I got to Angel, uh, you know, we were really tasked with kind of producing our own episodes uh, under the auspices of on, on Angel, our showrunner Jeff Bell. He really gave us, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of leeway to uh, to help pr- produce the show. So I had some experience. Um, and thankfully I couldn't have done it alone. Thankfully I had a co showrunner. So, so then the strike happens and, uh, I bump into Joss Whedon on the picket line outside of Fox. And, uh, he said, Hey, uh, you know, I sold a show to Fox right before the strike called Dollhouse. And, uh, when this wraps up, I'd love for you to come join us. And I go, yeah, yeah. Give me a call. So I, I ended up coming on that as one of the sweetest jobs I've ever had. I, I signed on as a consulting producer to write and direct, but part of my deal was, I said, look, I'm only coming in three days a week. I, I'll be there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Don't call me any other day. I don't care what's on fire. I'm not coming in. <laughs> How did you swing that? Or And also why? Were you also working on something else? It, yeah, and it was also, um, you know, it was partly because uh, at one point uh, there was some conversation about me coming on as showrunner. Uh, or second in command, and then that kind of shifted. And, and I totally understand why it shifted. Uh, I think it was the right call. Uh, but because of that, I was able to negotiate a, okay, I'll do it, wow. but Got limited. Because it. Uh, I'm trying to get other stuff off the ground. Got it. Did, did they trust you because of the experience that you had show running on this previous show that got canceled by God? Was that was, Were they like, oh, you know, Steven can do this. He has the experience. It was a little bit of that, and it was also just the fact that uh, I had worked with Joss on mm-hmm. Buffy and Angel, and it, it went really well. So I, I, I'm actually uh, I'm prepping to direct episode two of that show, and uh, my agents call me up. And this is the intro to where I really, uh, you know, ran a show for the first time. My agents called up and said, hey, uh, Sam Raimi wants to do some gladiator show for stars. Are you interested in taking a meeting? And I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. I said, yeah, I'll take that meeting. (laughs) So I go into the meeting and uh, Sam Raimi wasn't there, but uh, Rob Tappert, his producing partner, was on speakerphone from from where he lives in New Zealand. And they told me, you know, they wanted to do Spartacus, but shoot it like 300. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really cool. I mean, I'm a little daunted because I love Kubrick's Spartacus. But, uh, you know, that sounds right up my alley. And they said, great, can you start Monday? I said, fuck no, I can't start Monday. I'm (laughs) directing an episode of TV for Joss. I said, I'm not going to be available for like six weeks. And they said, well, God, we love you, but we got to go now. So, So we parted ways. Um, wow. and I went back and was directing and, um, about four weeks later, I'm on set directing and my agents pop up and, and it, as everybody knows, if your agents pop up on set unannounced, it's either really good or really bad. <laughs> and they said, Hey, stars reached out. They haven't found out anybody else. They like as much as you. Are you still interested? And I said, yeah. So I finished shooting that episode, and then I had two weeks of post. I finished post on that Dollhouse episode on a Friday, and I started Spartacus on a Monday. This this was much more the deep end. Spartacus was a, a difficult, complicated show. Um, and also, uh, shockingly low budget the first season. Our, mm. our original uh, budget for season one was like 1.9 an episode, 
which yeah, you couldn't shoot anything now for that. Yeah. Eventually, it went up to like I think two five that first season or something <laughs> like that. But it was still really really low. And I and I didn't know shit about ancient Roman history. Uh, the only thing I knew was like Kubrick, Spartacus, and you know movies like Ben Hur. Yeah. <laughs> Which is all. Which is all you need. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's all the history so I started about. reading frantically, and we got a couple of PhD um, uh, Roman history candidates to really help us out and help me out. And uh, and again, uh, you know, moving forward, where I, I'm at a point now where I'm doing a lot of executive producing, non-writing executive executive producing, helping other writers move into the show running position. It's like what. Tasha, you and I mm-hmm. uh, were working on at one point. I always say, listen, get yourself a physical producer that you consider your partner to cover the physical aspects of the show. Uh, because with Spartacus, I, I never would have been able to do this without Rob Tappert. Rob Tappert was, you know, stationed in New Zealand where he lives, and that's where we shot. And he was in charge of the production. Um, and, and he did a brilliant job of it. The show would not have worked without Rob Tappert. Um, I was back here in LA, uh, slaving over the scripts and, uh, uh, Rob and I, we love each other. We adore each other. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the time we had a lot of fights, you know, we had a lot of disagreements. Um, but he is a wonderful human being and we always found a way to work things out. And, And now, you know, like 10 years later after the, uh, after we originally aired, um, we talk every now and then and we just, you know, wax nostalgic about how, man, I wish we could find another partnership like that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, that works so well together, but that was really truly, uh, the first time I was tasked with from start to finish figuring out what the show is. Cause, uh, Rob and Sam, Sam's producing partner, Josh Donnan, they had all sold the show to stars before they brought on a showrunner. Um, but uh, it, it's a really funny side story. So <laughs> about I'm, I'm, I'm into the show about six months, and I asked, you know, how did you guys pitch this? Because there was, like, no story beyond what's generally known from the movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, they showed me a, uh, a, a DVD that Rob had filmed, um, him sitting at his desk, and uh, it's like uh, in old 1950s, if you ever seen William Castle, like introduce uh, his old horror movies, it was like that. And uh, it's Rob at his desk and says, uh, wouldn't it be great if we did Spartacus and it looked like this? And then they show clips from like 300 and Gladiator. <laughs> and that's how they sold the show. And that's it. <laughs> um, that's it. That's it. Because stars wanted a male driven action show. Yeah. Wow. And, and then I was brought in to like figure out, okay. So, I mean, we know Spartacus was a slave who eventually broke out and started this rebellion. What the hell's the story beyond that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I put together a writing team. Um, Some people uh, I knew, uh, like uh, the the great writer Brent Fletcher, who was a script coordinator on Angel and then had transitioned to being a writer. Uh, I think he he had just wrapped up like Friday Night Lights. Uh, A couple other people I knew... For example, uh, uh, I had worked with uh, Joss Whedon's brother, Jed Whedon, and his wife, Marissa, when I was on Dollhouse. So I brought them in and a couple other people and then some people that I'd never met and took a chance on. 
And then we just started, you know, digging in and figuring out the story. And that was really my first true show running experience. Do you remember what it felt like when you took that on? Or did you feel as though, like, was there any imposter syndrome? Or were you just like, I got this. I've been around this for so long that I know exactly what I'm doing. Oh, constant imposter syndrome. I mean, I still feel it today. <laughs> um, it, you just never shake it. Uh, yeah. you, you know, it's like every time I sit in front of a computer with a blank page, I'm like, how did I do this again? I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> every time. And it's even yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> and it's even <laughs> compounded with directing. I, I feel even more like an imposter there. So, yeah, I mean, uh, but you, you know, thankfully you just got to grind it out. Um, I was lucky. Uh, th- this was like one of the first shows back in the day that we didn't do a pilot. We just went mm. straight to series, which is a plus and a minus because uh, if you watch Spartacus, like the first three episodes are very shaky as we figure out exactly what the hell we're doing, both on the writing side and the production side. I was also lucky because it, it was it was a 13-episode order, not a 22-episode order. But with 13 episodes, we had enough elbow room to really explore the story. It wasn't uh, the crush of doing eight episodes where – you really can't tell any kind of side stories. You got to stay on plot constantly. Mm-hmm. But it, it was it was a fantastic learning experience. Speaking to that and speaking about the imposter syndrome, where do you feel like the imposter syndrome flared the most? Like on what tasks or what things that were expected of you did it flare the most? Because I imagine the writing part, you feel you felt like, all right, I got that. I'm really comfortable with that. But were there other parts that, um, you know, flared up when you thought imposter syndrome? And also, how did you then overcome that? Yeah. Well, even on the writing side, uh, I remember we, we got to an episode, I want to say it's like episode six or something in season one. Uh, it, it was where Spartacus and his wife who had been uh, captured and sold into slavery by the Romans were finally reunited. And I was adamant that this was a flashback episode to show Spartacus and his wife back in Thrace before all this happened, because we needed that backstory. And Rob Tapper didn't think that was a good idea, but ultimately he said, hey, if you think that's what this needs, have at it. So we wrote a script, a full episode, broke it, wrote it. I read it, and then I called up Rob and said, Rob, you're right. We got to throw this out. This doesn't work at all. (laughs) Which was also a huge learning experience for me because I think half of me was, I truly believe this was the right story. And the other half of me was, no, damn it, I'm the showrunner and I get to make yeah. this decision. So it was a valuable learning lesson that when experienced people around you express grave concern, uh, listen to them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but, but the writing started to go well and uh, it was in my wheelhouse. It was, uh, I always say that uh, Spartacus was like a mashup of Shakespeare and uh, Robert E. Howard, who created Conan. And uh, from my playwriting background, Huge fan of Shakespeare, studied a lot, acted in it, but uh, didn't want to go full Shakespeare because I didn't think people would completely understand what the hell uh, <laughs> anybody was saying. I remember the the pilot script, the first draft, I went full Shakespeare and everybody, the execs, everybody called up and said, we don't understand what the hell anybody's saying. <laughs> so I you know, pulled back on that. But yeah, the other part of the imposter syndrome is just, you know, there's there are so many decisions that you have to make as a showrunner. When you get to the showrunner level, the writing is maybe 30, 40% of it at best. The rest is nonstop meetings and notes and decisions about every little thing. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and once the show gets going, a good chunk of your time is damage control of trying to figure out how do we fix this problem without having to reshoot it at a great amount of expense. And also, uh, the other thing about show running that especially today with the short orders don't really prepare you for is the interpersonal relationships and the politics. Mm-hmm. It's it's how you how do you relate with executives, and it's something that I still to this this day uh, struggle with, and and have tried in the past couple of years to realign uh, my feeling because coming up through the ranks, the executives, the studio was pretty much kind of considered the enemy. The suit, yeah, the suits. Yeah. Uh, the way I approach it now, and, and I actually on a project. Uh, I'm having when there was a bump on it, I called up the executives and I said, look, I just want to be clear. I consider us partners that we're in this together. I'm You're not my enemy. I'm not your enemy. We might disagree on things, but we both want the same thing. We want a successful show that makes a lot of money. So just realigning that in your head, that they're not the enemy. And sometimes it's very difficult. I, I've worked with some fantastic executives. I'm very fortunate right now to be working with wonderful executives that are supportive and smart. And even when I don't agree with their notes, I understand where it's coming from. I've also in the past worked with executives, not to put too fine a point on it, but we're complete fucking idiots. And it's, (laughs) it's really hard at that point, uh, especially for me. I mean, I'm from Jersey, so, you know, sometimes we get a little explosive and uh, there have been times in my past that I've lost my cool that I wish I hadn't. Mm-hmm. That I wish I had taken a breath and, uh, you know, tried to maneuver more than confront. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's a suggestion I, I really suggest to every um, showrunner. Uh, one of the things that, that has gotten me into trouble in the past, but I stick by, is that I I insist on getting notes in writing. Some executives love it, some hate it. But for me, getting it in writing it gives me a chance to absorb the note, get angry about the note, vent about the note, then figure out how to address the note. Mm-hmm. Instead of if, if you getting the notes directly, um, which I, I also do sometimes get, but there's a much bigger chance of getting an emotional response and not an yeah. intelligent, creative response. Um, yeah. Especially uh, the best kind of executives will tell you everything they loved about the script first. The bad executives just start piling on everything that doesn't work. Yep. Um, and you just stop listening and get defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my last showrunner, he, whenever we were in a notes, there's always verbal notes, and um, he would just have the best smile on his face for the whole 30 minutes we were in it, just smiling and nodding. And it was so pleasant. And all of us would, you know, reconvene back in the room and be like, oh my God, we learned so much from you because like we were so emotional and you were just cool and smiling he's like i know they're fucking idiots right but then you know (laughs) then we would get into it but it was it was a very impressive show um that i think is something to learn from for sure but speaking to that i think like what do you feel like are the biggest learning curves for a writer then is it this kind of interpersonal stuff do you think it's the budget stuff what like where do you think is the biggest learning curve for most writers all of it quite frankly i mean writers by their nature are solitary creatures Mm -hmm. who sit and work alone And, uh, you know, if I put all the time that I've been writing, you know, I've probably spent years just isolated all by myself. 
being able to manage so many different personalities. And it's it's easy when the personality is pleasant and upbeat and creative and smart. It's not so easy when you get other people that are combative, bitter, um, you know, suck the energy out of the room. It, it can be very difficult. And, and look, that's not, I want to make it very clear. Um, showrunners can fall into the same trap. We've all heard stories about horrible showrunners creating a toxic atmosphere. Yes, Tasha. Um, <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, I strive. I always say, uh, look, I've got one rule, no assholes. Um, life's too short at this point. I, I want everybody to want to come to work. That being said, on the, it's much easier to create that atmosphere in the writer's room. Because we're all a merry band, you know, we all suffer the same indignities <laughs> together um, mm -hmm. of trying to write a script. It's a little harder when you're on set dealing with a, a, a lot of different people under a lot of different disciplines that are not necessarily your forte. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I know on set I have semi lost my cool before and I, I wish I hadn't and that's something that showrunners need to take in. Showrunning is an extremely stressful job. It's everything's riding on you and you're in charge of these days a budget that could be 80, 100 million dollars. You know, everybody's looking to you to keep the train on the track. So it's sometimes, you know, you're running on three hours of sleep, you've got 50 other problems and you lose your cool. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I never yell at people. I think that's very counterproductive because I've been yelled at on set before. Mm. And it's like the worst feeling in the world and it's not productive. But that being said, I have, especially when I've been directing, I've yelled not at anybody, but expressed my frustration to myself. And I wish I could go back in time and smack myself and, and, and say, listen, you're not yelling at anybody. But you're making the atmosphere um, difficult to work in. Mm -hmm. And that's not a thing you want to do. Uh, and you want everybody not to be scurrying around in a mad panic. You want everybody to rally around you and want to do their best work because you're a good person. And, and I, um, um, R Richard Donner is a great example. If you read any stories about him, just a prince among men. Just such a wonderful set to work on and a wonderful person. And I, I always now try to stop myself <laughs> and say, what would Dick Donner do? <laughs> <laughs> Just take a moment, take a breath. Everybody's doing their best. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's not the end of the world. It's interesting because you, I feel like you definitely have so many qualities that not all writers have. And I feel like you have a good understanding of people and everything you're talking about. And I'm curious, do you think any writer can make the jump from writer to showrunner? Or do you think there's certain qualities that a writer must have? Because it is a very isolating job. A lot of people can't talk to, like, I know writers who just freeze when they get into a conversation with people. <laughs> uh, so I guess, do you think it's possible for any writer or you kind of have to have a few more uh, skills? I do think it's it's possible for any writer. I mean, you you... You've got to work to, you know, fill in the blanks and mm -hmm. work on the on the spots that you know you're weak in. The most important thing is surround yourself with people more talented than you are. 
that is, uh, especially when you're putting together a crew, um, you know, put together a talented group of people and let them do their job. Mm-hmm. You know, let them make creative decisions. You are steering the boat. You need them to be invested and you need to rely on their expertise. And one, one of the things that I always talk about is, is the director of photography. Because the director of photography, this is, <laughs> this is one thing uh, executives almost never give notes on. Uh, or, or never tell the director of photography what to do because it's it's where math meets creativity, and uh, what they do mm. is so technical. And uh, you know, I've I've studied cinematography and I've drilled down on learning, and I've learned maybe half a percent of, of what I I would need if I was going to try to light my own show or movie, which I would never do. Um, kudos to any director that also does, uh, you, you know, their own cinematography. Um, because to me, still so much is a mystery. But finding great people that you rely on to help you solve problems so you don't feel like you have to do everything yourself. And also just being willing to let go of that idea that I'm the most powerful person here and everybody has to do what I tell them to. Instead, you know, you are the ultimate decision maker. Um, I've also seen showrunners mm-hmm. go too far in the opposite direction where they can't make a decision and they change their mind depending on who's talking. Uh, you have to mm-hmm. make a clear decision and it has to be fast. Um, I've made so many snap decisions that ended up being wrong in the long term, but we're right in the moment. But uh, it's like that old military saying that a, a good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. Because you just do not have the time yep. to sit around and think about it. You've, you've got to go with your gut. You've got to go with your experience. And you've got to rely on the experience of the people around you. Before we switch into directing, because everything you're saying is terrifying, <laughs> right? Like just a switch to, to showrunner and talk a lot about the stress and the three hours of sleep. Can you give a, maybe a snapshot or a, a story example of decisions you have to make on a daily basis as a showrunner that's a, a writer might be surprised by if they've never show run before just the degree to which the stress um hits you because of these decisions you're having to make oh yeah i mean uh i, I remember a story um this was on viva laughlin where I, I i get a call at four o'clock in the morning you know I, i'm in a dead sleep but um also as a showrunner I, I made it very clear to everybody if there's a problem don't hesitate to call me because it's like four in the morning. You don't want to disturb me. I'd rather be disturbed now than my head on fire in the morning when I wake up. So I got a call. The, there were two units shooting, uh, main unit and second unit. But there was a big star, a, a big movie star, uh, not Hugh Jackman, uh, who's a prince <laughs> among men, by the way, in a side note. Uh, seldom as I, have I ever met someone truly, so truly as nice as that. And uh, you always hear about movie stars, and until you're actually in a room with one of these people, uh, you don't really understand what that means. Uh, I remember mm. the first time he walked in the same room as me, <laughs> and uh, you know my eyes just pinwheeled. It was like uh, <laughs> uh, there was just—it was like he was glowing from the inside, and a sweeter man I'd never met. So this wasn't him, but there there was a a, a big movie star on first unit, and. Everybody gets uh, to set to shoot, 
and the sound guy is nowhere to be found. Um, so they couldn't shoot. And I get a call about, uh, you know, um, we're trying to shoot. We can't find the sound guy. What do you want us to do? I said, mm. find the fucking sound guy. <laughs> <laughs> so about 20 minutes later, they called me up and said, we found the sound guy. He had gone to second unit to make sure the sound was okay there. And he didn't tell anybody. So Tyler and I were faced with the decision um, the next morning what to do. And the decision to me was obvious. Uh, He's fired. Uh, You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. You cannot keep the star waiting and then have that person go back to their trailer in frustration. Uh, So unfortunately, he had to go. Um, One of the hardest things as a showrunner is when you have to fire people. Um, it's, uh, it's never pleasant. I've had to let writers go. I've had to let DPs go, production designers, you know, it's never easy. Inaratu, and I always slaughter his name. I, I, lucky I can pronounce my own name. Um, (laughs) I'd heard a story that when, when he lets people go, I don't know if this is true or not, but somebody told me the story. They worked with him and they said, he's, he always tells them. It has been lovely working with you. It's been a wonderful time, but our time together is over. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look, sometimes people take it well. Sometimes people don't take it well. You know, it all depends on the situation. So, uh, yeah, but, but to your point, um, there are so many decisions. I mean, it's anything you can think about. Costumes, mm-hmm. props, makeup, hair, uh, you know, production design. Uh, from from the large, like, how are we going to afford to build this set that we need to minute little details on uh, on props that on the surface don't seem like they matter, but you know to the bigger story they do matter. So it's just it really the, the hardest thing is just the amount of decisions you have to make while also keeping mm-hmm. the writer's room moving and writing scripts. That's if you're writing and shooting at the same time. It's obviously, it's a little bit easier uh, if you're doing eight episodes and you're going to write all the scripts before you shoot. There's overlap in pre-production, but you're not actually shooting. Um, That's also, uh, you know, back when there was 22 episodes uh, a season, one of the things is that uh, oftentimes you would be in the writer's room till like 11 o'clock at night. You know, you'd show up at nine, you'd be there till 11. But the reason you were there till 11 was because usually the showrunner was off putting out other fires and couldn't actually get to the room until those fires were put out. Mm-hmm. But really, it's just the sheer amount of decisions you have to make and the, 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 the amount of time you have to spend in meetings and on the phone and talking to the various departments and, um, you know, uh, production meetings, casting. I mean, the fact you just said you, you would go from being a writer to having to make decisions on how to build a set. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, a very, that's, that's a very different skill set that suddenly you just by Monday are expected to be prepared for. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's all funneled to the same thing. You've got a certain amount of time and a certain amount of money, and you've got to make both of those things work. And sometimes I've been able to do that, and sometimes things have disastrously flown off the rails and burst into flames. 
(laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you try to learn from your mistakes, but, but really it's the sheer aggregate of decisions and, and you have to learn how to relate to people. And, and it's a little bit of verbal judo, you know, you want them on your side. Um, even if you want to just jump up on the table and start yelling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, this is something that I, I still struggle with because uh, uh, oftentimes my head explodes and I do want to just start yelling, but it's incredibly counterproductive. It's honestly helpful to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's switch gears and talk about the other big transition of, of writer to director. You and I talked a lot about this when we were supposed to be talking about writing. We'd get distracted to talk about this. And I just find it so fascinating. Um, so let's, I guess, start at the beginning, which is what was the first thing that you directed? And again, where were you in your career at that time? I was on Buffy. Uh, I was in my uh, second season of Buffy, which was season six of the show. I came in on season five. I was having a fantastic time. Uh, loved all the writers, the cast, the show. It was like my favorite show on TV. I was incredibly fortunate uh, to have that opportunity. And uh, Joss Whedon pops into my office, and um, he had uh, sold Firefly to Fox. Mm. So now he had uh, three shows that were going to be going on. Uh, Buffy and Angel on the WB, which is the CW now. And uh, Firefly on Fox. So he couldn't obviously run all three shows at the same time for 22. I mean, (laughs) you can't do 66 episodes in one year. Um, So he wanted to move a a brilliant writer-director, Tim Minear, who was on Angel over to run Firefly. That left a serious hole down on Angel. So he came into my office and said, hey, would you consider changing from Buffy and going downstairs to Angel? Uh, Buffy was upstairs and Angel's offices were downstairs. And and I had loved Angel. After every episode of Angel, I would go downstairs and tell David Greenwalt and uh, Jeff Bell and Tim Minear about how much I loved the show. <laughs> in, in many ways, I think Angel might have been more my bag, uh, mm. uh, working more to my, my skill set. Um, so Josh knew this. He knew I loved Angel, and there was a, a creative hole down in Angel. So he said, would you be willing to move down to Angel? And he said, I'll give you a promotion and a raise, and I heard you're interested in directing. I'll, I'll let you direct an episode. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, he could have just said, will you go to Angel? And I would have said, yes, because uh, mm-hmm. I just I loved everybody on Buffy and Angel. So that that was the opportunity. So I go down, down to Angel, and... Uh, uh, you know, uh, this was season four out of five on Angel. And uh, I had been told I, I was going to direct. And, and Tim Minear, uh, Firefly was also in the same building. So it was three shows in the same building. Oh, Tim yeah. Minear would pop in occasionally to see what was going on. And he'd pop in to see me and, and he would say, uh, so, yeah, we're still trying to, we're figuring out, you know, when you're going to direct. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, I've never directed anything, not a play, not a short film. So I kept thinking, well, sooner or later, somebody's going to ask me, have you ever directed? They're going to find out I haven't. And then they'll say, well, we can't do that. So I'm waiting for the- That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. I'm waiting for the shoe to drop where, yeah, we know we said that, but that's insane. And then Tim Minear pops down and goes, okay, we've settled. You're directing episode 17. And I'm like, okay. And still I'm thinking, well, that's like two and a half months away. Somebody will wise up and it gets closer and closer. And I start sweating (laughs) like, oh, I know. So um, 
uh, write the episode, and uh, I think it was episode 17. Uh, I think it was the episode called Inside Out. And it gets closer and closer. I'm still sure they're going to realize I'm, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I, I start frantically reading every directing book I can get my hands on. <laughs> Unfortunately, at this point, you know, the internet was in its early stage, so I couldn't go on YouTube and, uh, you know, watch. Uh, how to direct. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I couldn't see breakdowns of how Spielberg stages a scene. Mm. Um, just wasn't available back then. So I'm reading every book I can. We're getting closer and closer. And then somebody realizes that maybe I don't know what I'm doing. So they decide to set up a, a day of second unit for me to come in and direct. These were scenes that didn't fit into the schedule or scenes that had been dropped because things were going too long. Uh, so they set up a, a day of second unit for me to direct. And I'm like, great, at least, you know, I'll get my, my feet wet. So uh, we shot Angel on, uh, on the Paramount lot. And uh, I lived in Santa Monica. I'm driving to the Paramount lot. There was some kind of accident. Traffic is jammed up. Uh, you know, I see the time we're supposed to start shooting, getting closer and closer. And I'm supposed to be there like an hour beforehand. Oh, Jesus. And, and I'm on the cell phone saying, you know, I, I'm on this street. I'm getting closer. <laughs> so literally, I walk on the set and we have to rehearse. You know, I had no time to, to think about it. And, and I always remember the first scene I ever directed was Eliza Dushku naked in the shower where she goes nuts and destroys the shower. Oh, no. Now, Eliza, I I cannot say enough good things about Eliza Dushku. I worked with her again on Dollhouse, and, and mm -hmm. she's just wonderful. But she's a Boston girl, and uh, uh, <laughs> she, she can scare the shit out of everybody. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> you get the feeling that she'll take you out in the back alley and, and give you the once-over. <laughs> Give you the tune-up. So I remember, uh, you know, her her manager was also there because it was. I mean, she wasn't nude on set. You know, there's like modesty briefs and yeah. and patches and whatnot, uh, but naked enough that it was a closed set. You know, which basically means they throw everybody out that's not absolutely necessary. And her manager was there, sitting behind me, making sure you know everything went smoothly. So that's even more. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember we're, we're we're in this tiny little bathroom set. And uh, Eliza walks in and she looks at me and goes, well, what do you want me to do? And I practically shit my pants right there. I don't think I ever told <laughs> Eliza this story. So if she ever hears it. Um, and then I start, uh, well, yeah, why don't you do over here and uh, do that? And then we'll come around. And she looks at me and goes, OK. And uh, so we <laughs> shoot it and it went fine. And then there were like two other scenes that day. Those went fine. And then uh, Jeff Bell, the showrunner uh, of Angel, uh, called me up later and said, yeah, everything looks okay. So carry on. Wow. So, <laughs> so when I actually went to shoot my first episode, I thought for sure that, you know, Jeff Bell or Joss or Tim would come down just to make sure I wasn't fucking up their show. But they were so busy putting out other fires, nobody showed up. This is insane, wow. Steve. Yeah, <laughs> I can't and, believe this. And yeah. after that first day of shooting, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I, I got into a, a little bit of trouble, um, just a technical thing. It's it's called the triangle mm -hmm. of death. It's when you have three people. If you stage them in like an equal triangle, you've got to split each person's eye line. So basically, you got to shoot everybody twice. And mm -hmm. I accidentally did that. I've never done that since. 
you know, <laughs> uh, but besides that, so I, I finished the first day of actual shooting. And, and again, uh, the next day I was on set and I got a call from, from Jeff Bell, who I could not love more, a real mensch. Uh, and he called me up and said, yeah, uh, you know, Josh and I looked at the footage. It looks great. Keep doing that. So I, I did my first episode. Uh, it was tough because I really didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. Had you shadowed any directors before this when you were writing? Other- oh, I was on set a lot. Okay. Um, okay. Covering set. Um, I, I had had, you know, uh, several seasons worth of being on set and seeing what directors do, but nothing really prepares you for that. It, it, I, I, I would yeah. say it's like jumping out of an airplane, uh, which I've done once. Mm. You know, you go through this training, you watch videos, you hear hear the experts talk, and then they throw you out of a fucking airplane, <laughs> you know, and everything <laughs> you've learned is out the window because you're just in a blind panic. <laughs> So the first episode, I, I, I squeaked by in the first episode, and it turned out pretty well. And then uh, the next season, uh, they gave me two more episodes. And the second episode is where I got into trouble, because now I knew just enough to really fuck things up. <laughs> and it was a very complicated episode, and this is where I got yelled out on set. Uh, the first day of shooting, it was incredibly complicated. It was a new set. It was this basement set. It was low lighting that had stunts and uh, special effects, special makeup effects. And it had the uh, triple whammy of, uh, it was a ghost story. So there were ghosts there and not there. So you had to shoot everything like twice. Hmm. By lunch, we were like three hours behind schedule. I mean, it, it was a nightmare. And the line producer came down onto set right before lunch and climbed so far up my ass for like five minutes, (laughs) stood there screaming at me and literally said, am I going to have to call Fox and tell him you can't shoot this fucking show? Wow. Jesus. And I almost quit directing. It was so bad. And also, horrible thing for any professional on set to do because Mm -hmm. at that point, uh, any kind of creativity is out the window. The crew just, you know, goes into a panic. The director yeah. goes into a panic. So uh, <laughs> that was a really rough episode. Um, didn't turn out great. And then I had to go back and do another episode later in the season, which did better. I mean, I, I learned from my mistakes. But uh, also, one of the big things I learned much later, uh, this was, uh, Jesus, I, I think I was working on uh, the, the ill-fated sequel to Pacific Rim. That's a whole nother two-hour podcast <laughs> we should do that sometime. Uh, yeah <laughs> the deconstruction uh, <laughs> where i went horribly wrong so uh i realized that for all of my directing career up until then even though i had trained in the theater as an actor i was giving really shitty direction to actors hmm. and, and to all actors uh, i apologize I, I apologize for my horrible direction i fell into the classic trap of of giving them result oriented direction, like you know, be more angry, uh, be a little happier here, which is yeah, which, yeah, which is yeah. horrible. You have to give them uh, action verbs, you know, attack, retreat, uh, you know, entice, something they can actually play. Uh, but I found this wonderful book called Directing Actors by Judith Weston that really just realigned how I how I communicate with actors, which was a huge revelation. I, I, I wish somebody had told me about that book back when I had started, and I highly recommend 
to uh, particularly any writer who's making a transition in a directing. Read that book, pour over it. It's just an amazing resource and it'll make your life so much easier. Up until that point, the only real advice I had gotten to working with actors, uh, and it was good advice, um, was uh, number one, never touch the actor. And when I was told that, I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) And I was told, well, (laughs) some directors, they will physically put their hands on the actor and move them into place. Mm. And you can imagine that makes an actor feel like an object. Um, which is, yeah. it's a no brainer, but you know, in the heat of the moment, you just forget that and you just need to get people in the place. So never touch mm-hmm. the actor. Very important. The, the other one, <laughs> I was told you only need to know four things, faster, slower, louder, softer. Um, those were not such good, uh, <laughs> good <laughs> instructions, but on, on the directing side, all, all, I, I had a couple of directors that I had worked with on, uh, Buffy and Angel who were really great, who gave me, uh, some great advice. One of the best pieces of advice was come prepared with your shot list, know exactly how you want to shoot it, and then be ready to throw it all out the window when the schedule goes sideways. Uh, because this person told me, listen, from the moment you step on, step on the set, you're two hours behind schedule. Mm. Mm. Um, and we used to have a joke on, on Angel that it was gone with the wind in the morning and Dukes of Hazard in the afternoon. <laughs> um, when suddenly you realize, you know, that the scene you had meticulously planned that you need three hours to shoot, you now have 45 minutes to do it. Yeah. Um, so you have to be ready to adjust and simplify and uh, just get something on, on film, which back then we actually shot on film. And that's, I mean, that's amazing advice. When, you know, when you're, when you're directing, when you're in the moment, but is there anything that you, any advice that you would have for people who aren't there in their career yet, any writers who aren't there yet, who want to be, writer, uh, want to be directors or showrunners? Is there any like thing you wish you knew or just people who are still kind of coming up and trying to get there? You know, it, it's so difficult. It wasn't easy back in my day, but is so much more exponentially difficult now uh, just because of the short orders, because you don't have a chance. You know, it's very difficult as a showrunner and putting on my showrunner hat to give a writer a chance to direct for the first time when I only have eight episodes. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's uh, it's too much of a roll of the dice when you only have eight episodes. When you're doing 22, I mean, look at my first time I directed. They buried me in episode 17. If that went south, it's one episode and 17. You know, uh, the show's not going to depend yeah. on it. Uh, if If you have only eight episodes and you roll the dice on episode six and it tanks, people could stop watching the show. It's just there's not enough opportunity. And this also goes for the the same thing for coming up through the ranks as a, as a PA, a writer's assistant, a showrunner's assistant. On Spartacus, you know, we, we started out on 13, and then we ended up finally doing, uh, after the prequel, 10 episodes. And even with 10 mm-hmm. episodes, I had the opportunity to give my assistant – the uh, writer's assistant, the PA, uh, a, a chance to write or co-write a script because there was enough elbow room. Um, when you only have six to eight episodes and you've got a full writing staff, it's harder to justify taking a script away from them to give mm-hmm. a chance to an up-and-coming writer. So it's really unfortunate. And, and with directing it, it's even more compounded. It, it's just, uh, it's it, it also extremely difficult to convince a studio 
to let a writer with no experience direct an episode. So it, it's so much harder now uh, to make that transition into directing. On, on the opposite side, it's a lot easier to do a short film. Uh, the technology is mm-hmm. there now where, where it, you know, it's expensive, but it won't break the bank per se. Uh, moving into show running, it's, uh, I think it's probably easier to move from being a writer to a showrunner than it is a writer to a director now in TV. Mm-hmm. Because there are so many shows out there now, and they need people running them. Oftentimes, they will now pair an inexperienced showrunner with an experienced showrunner or bring in a non-writing executive producer, um, which I'm doing on a couple of things. And, and for me, coming in as a non-writing executive producer, and I always make this clear to the writer-showrunners that I'm working with, is I'm not here to take over the show. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to help you. I'm here as a resource. And, and I'm here not only to tell you what worked for me, but more importantly, to tell you where I completely fucked things up. And that's what you should avoid. And just having that kind of safety net. And it's also a safety net for the studio because they can breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, there's somebody that's done it. That's, that's here. That's yeah. going to make sure that it's not a complete disaster. Yeah. I know a lot of writers who are in that position, by the way, who who are being paired with a non-writing mm-hmm. executive producer. And there's a lot of confusion about what that means. Can you just speak briefly about what that means in practicality once the show starts going? Where does that writer who's paired with someone who's senior like that, where do they fit in and vice versa? Well, it really depends on the situation. You know, the, I, I've also seen situations where a writer will create the show, but they're not the showrunner. They bring in a more experienced person to run the show. The writer is still involved as either a co-executive producer or a producer, but is not actually running the show. Best case scenario, scenario there is um, the person coming into the run, run the show will train that person as the showrunner. And I, I've been in a situation, a, a project that didn't go, but I was clear I would come in for the first year to run the show purely to get the creator comfortable. And then I would fuck off and they would run the show. And in fact, Buffy's a a, a great example. Um, Joss had no experience running a show. So they brought in David Greenwalt. Joss was the showrunner. David Greenwalt was the adult in the room to make sure everything went well. Mm. Uh, Now that was the best case scenario because they got along famously. David Greenwalt, quickly thought Joss was a genius and he was there to help fulfill his vision. And then they co-created Angel together. So that was a great situation. You can get into trouble because I've also heard many horror stories where uh, somebody creates a show and they bring in a showrunner. And then uh, that showrunner wants to push the creator out because they want it to be completely their own thing. So, so it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, mm-hmm. there's also, uh, you see more and more, uh, co-showrunners where somebody with more experience comes in, uh, is named co-showrunner with the creator of the show, uh, which again can be a huge plus if you get the right person that just wants to help, or it can be a disaster if you get somebody that really wants to take over the show. Um, mm-hmm. having run a couple of shows, I have no desire to take over the show. <laughs> From uh, any creator, uh, I, I would just want to get them up and running 
and feel comfortable. Yeah. I mean, we're at the hour mark, so I, yeah. I'm i going to wrap up with one final question, which is um, for writers who are unsure if they want to direct or if they want to show run, they're kicking that idea around. What do you want them to know about the job that they should really understand to help inform their decision? Uh, well, I think with show running, I always say show running is the best, worst job you can possibly uh, have. A lot of ups and downs. And, and I, I've known writers that have worked their way up, uh, have run a show for one year and decided it's just not for them, that they just mm -hmm. prefer being a writer. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, don't let your ego stand in the way. There's nothing wrong with that. Do what makes you happy. Uh, but, you know, uh, if you keep at it, especially as a writer, if you just keep at it, make a reputation for yourself as a problem solver, and somebody that people like to work with uh, trusts you uh, to get the job done, you will rise to showrunner. That's one of the benefits of the short episode order is that there's so many goddamn shows out there. There is a shortage of, of showrunners. So you will eventually get the chance to run a show, whether it's a spinoff of the show you're on, um, whether it's a show you've created. Uh, whether the studio takes a shine to you and, you know, gives you some IP to develop there, there's many paths to be becoming a showrunner. Uh, unfortunately for writers in this day and age, there are less paths to becoming a director. Uh, it, it's, it's probably easier on a lower budget feature side to get that chance at directing. And I'm not saying that's easy either, because, you know, I, we all know the the feature business right now is also in turmoil and kind of figuring out the future. I keep pushing for a return to 13 episodes for various mm. reasons. Uh, I think uh, you get more creative elbow room so you can tell a side story. I always use uh, the first season of Daredevil as an example for people who have seen it. Because we had 13 episodes, we had some room to explore some things. If we had had only eight episodes... You never would have gotten an episode that focused on Fisk's uh, backstory, on Vincent oh, Lafayette's backstory. That would have been a tragedy. Yeah, it would have been cut because it's it's outside of what's completely necessary for the story. And it's one of my favorite episodes. Uh, well, thank you. Interesting story. I was supposed to direct that episode, uh, but because of the schedule, I wasn't able to. And uh, we ended up bringing in Steve Sergic, and uh, he directed... Um, God, it's a, a movie. Uh, uh, I think it was Wayne's World 2. Mm. Awesome. And, and when I originally saw the credit, I was like, yeah, I don't know if this is a good fit. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know if I ever st told Steve that story. And then when I saw his directing on the episode, <laughs> I told him, I, I, well, I, I'm glad I got booted off that episode because of the schedule, because I think he did a lot better job than I ever would have been able to do. <laughs> um, it, it was one of my favorite episodes. It had nothing to do with the script. It was uh, his, his direction yeah. I thought was really fantastic. But uh, unfortunately, with eight episodes, yeah, stuff like that would get cut. And, and I know I, I've had this conversation online many times where fans say, yeah, but, you know, more episodes, there are filler episodes, and it gets boring. And I'm like, one man's filler episode is another man's character exploration. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you also <laughs> just look at all the weird, wonderful Darren Morgan episodes of X-Files. You would not have had that at, at mm -hmm. eight yeah. episodes. 
I, I, I don't want to return to 22. It's a grind. I get it. And also the modern audience, I, I don't think are going to really stick around that much for 22 episodes with so much content. But I, I still think they will stick around for 10 to 13. Me, purely as an audience member, there are so many shows I love and it's eight episodes, and I'm like, I, f- I feel like I've had half a meal. I feel that way, yeah. too. I, I, I want more. And I hope we slowly return to 10 or 13. Uh, I think it's better storytelling, and it would reinvigorate being able to train showrunners and also being able to give writers the opportunity to direct. Yeah. Stephen, thank you for for doing this. I really appreciate oh, my it. Pleasure. Really You're appreciate the greatest, Stephen. Thank so you. Much. Yeah, it's been awesome. Do you want to tell people where they can find you on the interwebs? If if I, I know you're on Twitter, uh, people to find you on Twitter? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter uh, under Stephen D. Knight. That's Stephen with a V, all lowercase. Um, I think I have an Instagram account that I never use. Uh, I'm too busy. <laughs> I, I'm too busy yelling on Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's uh, that's the main place uh, you can find me at the moment, and uh, a bunch of projects coming up, none of which, unfortunately, I can promote yet because I'm sworn to silence. I was just going to say, what, where, what can we see of, of yours yeah, gonna, next? We'll pump them all out, though. Like, trust me, it's like, <laughs> so exciting. Fantastic. I'm, I'm hoping to start announcing things uh, later this year. Right now, um, you know, as everybody's well aware, because of. Uh, COVID, the business got a little backlogged, so uh, yeah. uh, things are in the development pipeline, but waiting for the official announcement. Okay, well, awesome. I'm excited for that. Okay, listeners, in celebration of our 100th episode, which is today, which is great. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for all of that. Um, we have a final draft giveaway to celebrate. So what you can do to be entered into this is to tag us on Twitter at act two writers and share this episode on Twitter. And we will pick one random winner who does this and we will pick them on Friday, the 24th at 12 PM Pacific standard time. So just go to our Twitter repost this episode. um, And that's it. You'll be entered to win a final draft 12 giveaway. Boom. Final draft 12 is the best. It is the newest and the latest. And Josh yeah. and I both use Final Draft. And yeah, we, clear, we clearly both used Final Draft 12 as well. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Soon, though. Not yeah. yet. I'm going to I'm going to somehow force myself to win one of these giveaways. So that, yeah, that cheating. The next <laughs> so two winners are Tasha and Josh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Quote of the day. Quote of the day. This is a little self-aggrandizing for Steven, but. Growing to love something is really simply forgetting slowly what you dislike about it. James Wesley, played by Toby Leonard Moore in Daredevil Season 1, which I just feel like is applicable to show running. (laughs) Good stuff. All right. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act 2 Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter. Josh Hallman on Instagram. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.